Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. A deep dive this week into a fascinating issue, social anxiety. I think this is super common. I know I've had at least a little bit of this, and our our guest this week, Ellen Hendrickson, knows all about it. She treats it, and she is a longtime sufferer. She has uh, a lot of interesting insights into the condition itself and a ton of useful information and tips for dealing with social anxiety. Much more uh, from Ellen coming up. First, I want to mention something on the app, and then we'll do um, your voicemails on the app. This is pretty big news. We've got a new course up from the man himself, Joseph Goldstein, who is uh, uh, just an incredible meditation teacher, somebody I've worked with uh, directly for many, many years. And this is a course about these little phrases that Joseph has used, little teaching phrases that he's used in his teaching for decades that are really these simple little keys to unlocking stress. And... uh, (laughs) To hear him talk about it uh, and to hear all of his years of expertise being whittled down into these brilliant little phrases is truly inspiring. So I highly recommend everybody check that new course out on the app. That's from Joseph Goldstein. Voicemail time. Here's number one. Hi, Dan. First of all, I'm a huge fan. I read your books. My question is how to um, keep habit of meditating going on. Some days I'll be able to go a few days, waking up early in the morning and meditating between 10 to 15 minutes. I'm not quite to a um, stellar expert expert level of meditation yet, but I'm definitely taking it by baby steps. Um, that's really all that I can squeeze in in the morning before I get up so that I'm able to get ready on time and allow myself enough time to be able to get ready and then get to work on time. Um, so that's my first question is just finding motivation to maintain that and keep going, I'm, part of it could be just making it a habit of waking up earlier, I guess. And then my second question is my boyfriend who I live with, um, I really want to motivate him to start meditation as well, but it's just so hard for me to get him to understand the importance or um, understand the benefits of what could come from meditation. Um, he's very he's very scatterbrained. And much like me, if he finds it very hard to wake up in the mornings and he barely has enough time to get to work. So I just want to know maybe what you would, you would recommend to say or uh, inc- what, what words that you would have to encourage him or to encourage me to um, help him out and help him understand and maybe uh, convince him to try it out um, because I think it would be really beneficial for him um, as well as myself. Thanks so much, Dan. Um, love from um, St. Paul, Minnesota. Thanks so much. Thank you for the love from Minnesota. Let me start with the second question first. Don't try. That's not to say I don't love your boyfriend. I do. And I'm sure you do too. And I don't think you're not trying is a sign that you don't love him. I just think that trying to convince somebody to meditate is often, if not 100% of the time, very annoying and off-putting and is not likely to work. Probably not 100% of the time, but maybe 100% of the time in romantic relationships. People receive the message of, hey, you should meditate as, hey, you're a broken human. That's just the way it is, unfortunately. Um, so, I, you know, maybe I have so much scar tissue from f- trying and failing with my own wife uh, that this is uh, coloring the advice I'm giving you. But just based on my per- personal experience and having spoken to lots and lots and lots of people about this, I just strongly recommend that you not evangelize on behalf of meditation interpersonally, especially if it's unsolicited. I think the better route is just to see and demonstrate the benefits of meditation yourself and then let that force him to come to you to ask you about, hey, what's going on with you? Uh, What is this thing doing for you, et cetera, et cetera. So – yeah, I, I, I'm I'm pretty strongly dogmatically on the side of don't, you know, just work on yourself first or as the, the cliche we often reference here, of, like they say on the airline safety instructions, put your own ma- oxygen mask on first. And on the subject of you, on the issue of 
your motivation. I, I really think, and we talked about this with Jeff Warren recently on the podcast we did, which was an all voicemail episode about how to boot up a habit for the new year. So if you want much more on this, go to that episode. But just briefly, I would say that the be- from what I've understood by looking at the science around habit formation and, and human behavior change, really uh, willpower is not something to count on. Instead, co-opting the, the, the pleasure centers of the brain is a better way to go. And so I would tune into the benefits of the practice. So when you, you you may notice after doing a few days running that you that you feel less yanked around by your emotions, you're more focused, calmer. Tune into that and let that pull you forward as a source of motivation, and don't worry so much about falling off and on the wagon. And sometimes I believe I said this in the recent episode. Sometimes falling off the wagon is a source of motivation in and of itself because seeing how your inner weather gets so much you know stormier when you're not meditating is a great motivation for meditation itself. And then finally, the last thing I'll say is uh, you need sleep. I wouldn't skimp on sleep. My personal advice, again, you, should, you can take or leave this, but my personal advice is to get as much sleep as you need and maybe give yourself a break on the amount of time you're allotting for meditation. I, I, I don't think it needs to be too much time. If, if all you can fit in is one, two, five, ten minutes, then that's cool. Um, I, th- I really do think that's uh, that you're doing yourself a favor there, and maybe you find another time later in the day where you can also get a little bit. All right, good luck with that. Uh, here's number two. Hi, Dan. My name is Nicole, and I'm calling from Colorado. I want to thank you for everything you've done. I've really enjoyed your book, and it's helped open up the world of meditation to me. Um, I am an oncology nurse. Um, specifically, I give chemotherapy infusion. And so in my line of work, we deal with death and dying on a daily basis. And I'm trying to bring my meditation practice into my work environment to help me deal with some of the stress and emotions that come up, um, as well as bringing some um, mindfulness and compassion into my job. However, I find the concept of equanimity to be a difficult one to grasp, and I'm curious with your experience working in hospice if you can lend me any advice on how to bring equanimity into an environment like this where you're dealing with people on a daily basis who are facing death and dying. Thanks for your help, and thanks for everything you do. Bye. Thank you for the work you do. It's incredibly important. And I, and I appreciate the voicemail as well. Um, but again, uh, having having uh, had a wife who um, has dealt with uh, some uh, cancer struggles of her own, uh, the, all the people uh, who do that kind of work, it's just really I, – I salute you. Um, the issue of equanimity – I think – and I don't know if I'm diagnosing correctly your struggle with the concept, so I'm going to take a little bit of a guess. But it's possible It's possible that you're confusing equanimity with passivity. So equanimity doesn't mean – or acceptance doesn't mean that you that you don't give a crap. It doesn't mean that you don't care. It, it just means that you recognize the facts – right now for what they are uh, and that you take wise and reasonable and measured and sound action based on that. Uh, and I just think that can stop you from wasting a whole bunch of energy. It, and, it, and it also doesn't mean that you – I think it's the – I think it's in many ways and Sharon Salzberg has spoken about this and written about this quite beautifully – it's what can enable the arising of the opposite of passivity or uh, apathy, which is compassion, which is the ease. You need some sort of internal unclenching in order to effectively help people when they need you. And uh, I think being able to see things clearly, to be able to surf the inevitable ups and downs, to know that ups and downs are inevitable, to know in your bones that impermanence is real and applies to all of us. That kind of equanimity, to be able to see 
the arising of really difficult emotions in yourself and others without being totally owned by them. That kind of equanimity clears the way for you to be effective in your efforts to care for your patients. And by the way, this applies to all of us, not just people in really in, in extreme environments like the one that you are brave enough to inhabit. So that's that's my understanding. I hope I understood your question as as you intended. And again, thanks for your work. It's really important. So somebody else whose work is important, Ellen Hendrickson, our guest this week. She's a clinical psychologist. She's got a, an award-winning podcast called The Savvy Psychologist. I was on there a couple months ago. She does, She's a great interviewer. And as it turns out, she's a great interviewee. She works uh, as well at the Boston University Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders. Uh, she has written in lots of major publications and is, as I said before, somebody who knows a lot about social anxiety. And even if you don't have a diagnosis here, I think we've all been nervous. Maybe we haven't all been nervous. I think many, if not most of us, have been nervous or um, awkward in social situations. And she really has dealt with it uh, with her patients and in her own life and has a lot to say that is, I found incredibly valuable. So instead of me talking more about it, let's let's hear from Ellen. Here she is. Well, thank you for doing this. Nice Absolutely. to meet you. Thank, thank you. Nice to meet you. Thanks for being on my show. My yeah. pleasure. And we talked about meditation mm-hmm. or mindfulness meditation, mm-hmm. and I have a horrible memory. That's so, okay. You so talked f- to a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> so so you, you were, I can talk about that too. Um, so you were super validating when I talked about um, my kind of on-the-fly mindfulness. And I was kind of beating myself up about not having a practice and not having a formal, not doing formal meditation. And you said, well, maybe you don't have a formal practice, but you're definitely practicing. You're definitely doing something. Um, and and so, you know, I found that very validating and, you know, uh, it helped me stop thinking about meditation or mindfulness in such a perfectionistic way. Yeah. So that was, that, I found that very helpful. So you, before we started rolling, you said in the mindfulness meditation, if you take the, the If you take mindfulness meditation, yes, yes. I, I do the mindfulness part, but it's more just like a moment of being behind the waterfall. Like, okay, let me check in. All right, let me move on. <laughs> so, so how did you come to that? How did you start embracing this technique? Sure. So that's, that's a very straightforward answer. So I, I'm a clinical psychologist, and in graduate school, you have to learn about the concept of mindfulness in order to teach it to your clients. So it's mindfulness is part of the third wave of psychotherapy. So first wave... Freudian psychoanalysis, second wave, behaviorism. So think B.F. Skinner and, you know, pigeons pecking on levers. Rats in a maze. Rats in a maze, exactly. And so then in the third wave, uh, so pretty much every evidence-based psychotherapy has a mindfulness component now. So for, you know, for psychology nerds out there, that could be, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, all all these – uh, orientations that are researched and proven to be evidence-based have a mindfulness component. So it's it's really the peanut butter and jelly of of training now. And so in order to help my clients, I had to learn it myself. And it really stuck because, and this is apropos to our discussion today, it helped with my own social anxiety because you talk a lot about how the voice in your head is a jerk. And <laughs> I vo- use a different word. But yes, yes, but I try not to get bleeped. And <laughs> you, yes, you can yes. say whatever you want. We'll bleep you. Okay. But you can say – you don't seem sure. like a big cusser to me. I am me, not. But, um, yeah, but, but I'm not allowed to swear. So just got so it. You know, okay. th- those you, are the rules. You are owned by Disney. So yes. 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 Okay. So, so, you, so you talk about the voice in your head. And the voice in my head is slightly different. It's more like an anxious grandma who is easily scandalized and clutches her pearls a lot. <laughs> and so, so she says things like, that's not appropriate, or that's disrespectful, or you can't do that. You'll be a burden. And so with mindfulness, I've discovered that there is a huge difference between thinking I'm being annoying versus I'm having the thought that I'm being annoying. Mm-hmm. And that that has been really helpful and amazing to me. So why not do the formal practice? That's a great question. And so, okay. And do you recommend it to your patients, formal practice? So, again, a great question. Um, I think, so I think as part of training, it like meditation was never 
sold to us. And, really? So, yeah. So in my, you say mindfulness is part of the third wave, but they don't correct. They don't recommend they, it as a as a practice. In my in my training, like in grad school or subsequently, like meditation is not really a word that gets used. And so maybe in so maybe this is my world of psychotherapy, and it's it's burgeoning elsewhere. But in my experience, mindfulness and meditation don't really go together in terms of psychotherapy. Um, they certainly can. And I, I teach mindfulness to patients and, and use your behind-the-waterfall analogy quite a bit. I think I stole that from John Kabat-Zinn. Oh, okay. Well, well, then we say thank you to him. I also <laughs> steal another analogy from, um, from Kristen Neff. She, she's the self-compassion researcher from the University of Texas, and she talks about uh, pretend you're in a movie theater and you are wrapped up in the plot and you, you know, bite your nails when the villain jumps out and you sigh when the, you know, the, the couple gets together. And then she says, now pretend that the person next to you sneezes and suddenly you realize, oh, I'm watching a movie. Like the reverie is broken. You have this mm-hmm. disconnect. You realize you're, in, you're sitting in the theater. And that, that being able to realize I'm watching pixels on a screen is analogous to being able to watch your thoughts or watch whatever is going across your field of consciousness. And so that is also helpful to me and to my clients. Yeah, so basically saying, I mean, I love that. I think that I love both analogies. Yeah. You're teaching mindfulness as a way to not be so yanked around by the discursive voice in your head. Exactly, exactly. So you can, you you know, the thoughts are still there. You can still see them. There they are. But they don't they don't own you, they're not yanking you around. Yeah, I would say that the the formal practice just supercharges that mm-hmm, the capacity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. a, it would be like weightlifting to make your muscle stronger. Right. No, and like I intellectually understand that. Like I'm I'm, you know, tapping the part of my forehead where my prefrontal cortex is behind. <laughs> but for whatever reason, like that that like lizard brain has has not gotten on board yet. And I think so I was actually thinking about this. Like, why don't I do this? Because it would be like something that I I would think that I would want to do, like just knowing my personality. No, like I I exercise, I do things that are good for me. I buy into the science. I get it. Why am I not doing this? And so I think that my current answer is that when I start doing something new, and I, this probably applies to most people, I feel incompetent, mm-hmm. and and so there's this certain amount of like flailing around and like being very ungainly, and like if you're you know the, like I picture an ice skater like just falling on the ice like continuously, and I at this point at least apparently I am not willing to go through that <laughs> phase. To get to, through the ugly duckling phase to get to the point where I can be a meditative swan. <laughs> you know, the good news and the bad news is that the ungainliness, in my experience, never ends. Mm, mm-hmm. the, okay. It, it's really hard to compute for type A people because uh, we do things and expect to win. Yes. And meditation is just like, quote unquote, losing over and over again because you just are carried away and away and away. And actually... This is the thing I have to say to people over and over again. The moment you notice you've been carried away is the win. Mm -hmm. And that is meditation. It's you are unlikely at your stage and even at my stage, 10 years, nine years into this thing, to sit and just be on the breath in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. uh, For actually, you're even unlikely to be to sit and be on the breath for more than a few nanoseconds. You really are just sitting there just getting carried away over and over and over again. And it's the catching that and coming back that is the winning. But the real winning is what you're already teaching your yourself and your patients, which is in your actual life, you're seeing it's a movie. You're seeing – you're getting behind the waterfall. In other words, you're getting out of the stream of the nonstop torrent of water. In this case, it would be thoughts or emotions, impulses. You're doing that in your regular everyday life mm-hmm. more readily than you would otherwise, whether even even if you, as you do and your patients hopefully do, embrace mindfulness intellectually, you can supercharge that through sitting there and just over and over and over again, training the ability to see, oh, wow, I'm insane, and then starting again and again and again. There's that grandma again. Yes. 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 In your case. Yes. Makes sense. Yeah. I, I think – that I mean, so. By the way, that is not an argument that I'm not making the case to you. 
I just want to be clear sure. that you are a lost soul if you don't sit and have a formal meditation. No. I'm not of that view. No, you're not. You're not making me feel that way. And so I think my, so. My internal struggle right now is like is again that I should want to do this, and the mm. the why the why 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 don't I? What what is what is this barrier? And so. Maybe it's my own perfectionism. Maybe it's the you know. The, I feel like I'm Type A without the hostility. Like I, I definitely want to be productive and want to do things well, and 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 so maybe maybe that part is still standing in my way. But yeah, no, I I I, I hear everything you're saying. One thing, well, again, with the caveat that I really try to avoid ever pressing this upon anybody, but. One thing that might work in your case, just as this is a guess, is a month-long challenge mm, mm-hmm, to say, mm-hmm. I'm going to try this for a month. To have a goal. And because, because you strike me, and I'm basing this on very little data, as – An achiever? Yes. Yes, yes. Somebody who likes to check boxes. Yeah, 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 right? yeah, absolutely. And That is accurate. And I think doing it every day or most days – for for a couple of minutes, mm-hmm. and then at the end of the month, say, say you're you're going to tell yourself this story. Grandma can tell this story, which is I'm only going to have to do this for a month, and then when you get to the end of the month, see how you feel. Because my suspicion is nobody's ever come back to me and said I've tried it for a month at a significant. Well, only one person has ever come back to me and said I tried it at a month for a month, and there was I literally saw no benefit. That one person is the the great writer Gretchen Rubin, ah. um, who. Is, remains a meditation skeptic. Well, not a skeptic. She's like you. She is not skeptical of it. She just can't get herself to do it. She did do it for a few weeks and decided she didn't see any benefit. And my, our, our collective, mining, meaning mine and Gretchen's suspicion is that she wasn't really doing enough. She was maybe just doing too, too sh- uh, short an amount. But who knows? I don't know. It doesn't yes. matter. Yeah. For you, you're the only data point that matters here. And so it might be worth trying it for a month and seeing what happens. Yeah, maybe spe- you'll be like Gretchen. Speaking of Gretchen Rubin, so like I of her four tendencies, I'm a questioner. So perhaps it's also just that I'm resisting outside expectation. Yes, I, I could just be being stubborn. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. That's a, that's a possibility too. So Gretchen, just to fill in the re- the listener, Gretchen wrote a great book called The Four Tendencies, which sort of says that when it comes to behavior change or habit formation, we are all in one of four buckets. This is her schema, and is a rebel and a a questioner. Upholder. Upholder. And, and obliger. And an obliger. And so you're a questioner. So right. am I, if I recall. Okay. Yes. And, um, so yeah, no, I think that makes sense. And I, 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 that, that's one of the reasons why I'm not wagging my finger at you or anybody because I'm a questioner and I would hate if somebody did that to me. And I, knew it would, I know it would backfire. No, and I, I appreciate the lack of finger wagging. Yes. So, yeah, so I, I, I will take you up on the challenge. So tell, tell me more about grandma. Well... Um, How, where do you think this comes from? Oh, well, so, so I mean, social anxiety and, and also like this, I, I do have to sell that, that mine has diminished significantly over the years through, I think, some combination of time and, but mostly practice. And, and like, I, I joke that, you know, much like the hair club for men from the eighties, you know, I am the author of a book about how to lessen your social anxiety, but I'm also a client. And <laughs> and so like the techniques that really, really work for me. And so grandma is a lot quieter than she used to be. And I also notice her a lot more and I'm able to say like, okay, grandma, that's that's cool. Thank you for your input. I appreciate you trying to protect me, but I'm going to go do that thing anyway. So, but, but so social anxiety is a mix of genetics. So if you have a first degree relative with diagnosable social anxiety disorder, you have a four to six-fold increased risk of having the same disorder. So that's part of it. There's definitely this this uh, also coffee and cream swirl of genetics and experience because if you were raised by somebody with social anxiety, likely you're not going to get exposed to experiences that would challenge that. But there's also just a, a, a lot of things that folks with social anxiety tend to do and be, like perfectionistic, uh, like introverts. Um, and I can I can talk about a lot of the things yes. that oh. we can do oh. to oh. to turn that around. So and is this, uh, before you uh, run with this, which I hope you do. Sure. Um, I guess d- does this only apply to people with social anxiety disorder, no, or no, for no. anybody who's ever experienced any social anxiety of any flavor? I'm I'm glad you brought that up. So if okay, so in the U.S. at least, 
13 percent of people at some point in their life will reach a clinical level of social anxiety. So it's and that is defined by when it crosses the threshold of getting in your way. So if you um, consciously forego 20 percent of your grade because that you just can't bring yourself to raise your hand in class and get those class participation points. Or if you forego a promotion at work because that would mean that you had to travel and meet new clients or that you had to give presentations if, if it gets in the way of your life or causes inordinate distress. So, for example, like 20 years ago, if I was going to come here and, and chat with you, I would have lost sleep for a week wow. about this or wow. I would have had GI problems for a number of days. Now – I, you know, on a scale of zero to 100, if zero is hanging out on the couch watching Netflix and 100 is a panic attack, I'd say coming down here is maybe a 32 or 40, you know. So, like, I was I was trying to do some other work on the train and I, my mind kept coming back to this. And, like, occasionally my stomach would flip-flop, but I slept great last night and I started thinking about this a couple of days ago. And so, like, I've come a long way and so that's that's been very satisfying. But I'm confused there. I'm sorry to keep cutting you off. No, you're fine. And I really don't want to derail you because I want to get you where you're going because sure. I personally want to hear it. Um, to me, what you're describing sounds like a mix of social anxiety and also fear of public speaking. Those are the same thing. So ah. so social anxiety is, is – so the, the umbrella of social anxiety is also performance anxiety. So, um, so public speaking or – um, performance on stage, uh, musicians, um, actors, uh, all that goes under the the umbrella of social anxiety. So I'm glad you asked that because that's a nice that, – I, I think that's important to clarify. But so 13 percent of at least Americans will get to the point where it gets in the way of their life sometime in their lifetime. But if you ask people, are you shy, which is just a everyday way of saying socially anxious – 40% of people will say yes. If you change the question and say, have you ever been shy? Like, were you shy as a child? Were you awkward as a teenager? 80% of people will say yes. So that is a huge majority of people who knows what this feels like. Or I would rephrase it to, just in my own case, do you ever get shy? Like, mm, are mm, you shy mm, sometimes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you- often I'm not shy, but sometimes I'm just – Either I'm just not in the mood or there's a thing that's intimidating. Sure. Absolutely. And I, and I think that that is accurate because folks with social anxiety are not anxious all the time. You know, if they're with their partner, they're with people they love and trust, they feel safe, they're fine. They're fine. And so it's, it's only when there is a perceived social threat that it kicks in. And it's based on this perception. I want to emphasize perception that there is a fatal flaw, that there's something wrong with us, that other people are going to see. It's going to be revealed and therefore will be re- rejected or like embarrassed for it. And so research has found that there are four general categories uh, that, that get people you know, feeling socially anxious. One is appearance. So the thought that like I'm having a bad hair day or I have a big zit or my butt looks big in these pants – and so, so there's something about their physical appearance that makes them feel very self-conscious. And that, that's actually a really nice um, analogy because we can all relate to experiencing that at some time. You look in the mirror like, oh, that, I need to throw on some tinted moisturizer. I'm going to wear a hat today. I'm going to change these pants. And so – but imagine not being able to conceal it and having to go out in public. That feeling of self-consciousness is the same feeling that you get with social anxiety except instead of – only for the outside, it can also be for the inside, the internal self. Anyway, okay, so that's that's one category, the external self. The other is the symptoms of anxiety themselves. So the sense that people will see us sweating through our shirt or will notice our hands are shaking or that our voice is trembling or that we're turning red. So that sense that they're going to see me blush and think I'm an anxious freak is, is, uh, is social anxiety. The last two categories are the biggest, and those are one's social skills. So a sense that somehow I am boring or uh, nobody really wants to talk with me or um, I'm, I'm not funny or cool. So that, that idea, that, that perception and distortion 
is the third category. And the last is basically one's whole character. Like, I'm incompetent, I'm stupid, I'm a burden, I'm annoying, etc. And so... So it's they between that and performance anxiety, there is there's a many colors, you know, in this rainbow of social anxiety, but it all boils down to this sense of having this fatal flaw that will be revealed and that people will reject you for it. Mm. So that's our definition. And so what do you do about this? Right. So there's lots of things you can do about this. Ah, very nice. Good job. So um so there's lots of things we can do. And so the one thing is to try to turn our attention inside out. In a socially anxious moment, our attention naturally starts to turn inward. And we start to monitor what we're going to say, or we think, oh, should I stand this way or this way to look more natural? Or we think, oh, did, what, why did I say that? I sounded like an idiot. And, and so rather than turning our attention inward and monitoring, which takes up a lot of bandwidth, and leaves very little left over for actually being where you are and being in the situation. Um, if we start focusing outward, so we we look at the person we're talking to, and here I'm actually this is how the sausage gets made. This is what I'm doing right now. So I'm looking at you, I'm listening carefully to what you're saying, and I'm trying to to phrase my answers not not in a way that is rehearsed, but instead gets across. The, the, the passion that I have for this topic and what will help your listeners. So I'm trying to take my attention off me and put it outside. So essentially, if you can pay attention to anything except yourself, then the anxiety will, will deflate, mm. which, is, which is so, so helpful. Because um, the, the, the instinct is to, is to manage more, to do impression management or to try to um, try to be more kind of tightly wound. And so when we turn outward, that that goes away. So would that be like asking, if you're in a social situation, maybe just asking people some questions about themselves? You could do that. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, that, yes. And folks with social anxiety often don't disclose anything about themselves. They try to deflect the attention away from themselves. And so I would say, yes, you could absolutely do that. And you could also disclose a little bit about yourself to give people something to work with. Uh, folks with social anxiety usually play things kind of close to the vest um, and and keep things private. Because again, there's this perception that there's a fatal flaw. And if we reveal too much, you know. But sometimes doesn't doesn't social anxiety result in logorrhea? You know, you're just Yes. Diarrhea. Yes. So yes. That's another thing. Right. Right. The the nervous chatter. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's that's that has a name. So things like that. So either peppering somebody with questions so you don't have to talk about yourself, doing the logoria, um, are called or talking really quickly so you can get this over with, are called safety behaviors. And so that's another thing that can be done to lower that anxiety is to drop those safety behaviors. And so there's a, a, a lovely story I can tell. So one of the people in my book, his name is uh, Jia Zhang, and he came to the United States from China when he was 16, and he wanted to be the next Bill Gates. And so he, um, he worked in computer programming and worked his way up to a, you know, a high-level position at a you know, Fortune 500 company, and then turned turned 30 and said, okay, it's now or never. If I'm ever going to do a startup or start my own company, it's it's now or never. And so he quit his job and started a startup. And right before he was about to, to really make his product public, he lost his funding. And so he realized he had, you know, he had a number of employees to support. He had a new baby at home and he lost all his funding and was feeling, you know, very anxious about this. And so his, he realized that his own anxiety and fear of getting rejected from another funder was really holding him back. So he decided to put himself through a boot camp that he called 100 Days of Rejection. So he wanted to try to get rejected. Day one, so he, he recorded all these on his cell phone, took videos of all of them. He decided that his first challenge would be to ask the security guard in his building if he could borrow $100. And so in this video, you see him scurry up to the security guard and spit out the words, hey, can I borrow $100 from you? And the security guard says, kind of looks at him with a quizzical look and says, no, why? But he doesn't, Jaw doesn't even hear the why. He just says, no, oh, okay, all right, bye. And he like runs off. 
And and so his safety behavior was speed. He was just trying to get this over with. And when he went back to edit the video, he realized, oh, wait, this guy said why? This, like, this was a, an offer to extend the conversation. I didn't have to run away. He's like, all right, I'm going to do this better tomorrow. So the next day, he goes to a burger joint, and he finishes his bacon cheeseburger and goes to get a, a refill on his soda. And he notices that the soda fountain says free refills. And he, you know, the light bulb goes off. He gets this idea, strides up to the counter. And this time he doesn't use speed. He, he squares his shoulders. He looks the guy in the eye. He talks in a normal tone, normal speed and says, hey, this burger was great. Can I get a burger refill? <laughs> and, and the, you know, the guy behind the counter doesn't understand it first and finally gets it. And is like, no, sorry, man, we don't do burger refills. And Joss says, oh, okay, no problem. I'd like the place a lot more if you did. And he just he saunters off. So no safety behavior. It just asks in a very reasonable way, reasonable tone, even if the content of what he is asking for is not reasonable. <laughs> and and so there he still got rejected, which for him was a win, right? He was trying to get rejected to build up a, a thicker skin. But but there is the difference. So his experience in using safety behaviors, trying to get it over with, trying to artificially tamp down that anxiety on the first day resulted in him feeling really different than on the second day when he let all those safety behaviors go and acted as if he were confident about this, as if this was a perfectly reasonable thing to ask. So very different anxiety experiences. So just to get back, so this is the first tip, just to reframe the discussion. The first tip is? The first tip is to turn your attention inside out. The second tip is to drop your safety behaviors. Okay. Okay. So we've yep. moved on to the second. We've tip moved here. on to the okay, second great. to the yeah. second tip, and a third tip is to give yourself some structure. So, I I can illustrate this through an, another study. And here, so there are two Australian researchers named uh, Doctors Ron Rapay and Simon Thompson, and they did this really lovely study with women with diagnosable social anxiety, and so they they took women with with diagnosable anxiety. And also women on the opposite end of the spectrum. So women who were kind of more outgoing and like confidently chatty than average. And one at a time sent them into the waiting room of, for the experiment, which unbeknownst to them began as soon as they entered the waiting room. So they sat down and a male lab assistant who was acting as a confederate came in, sat down close to them and said, oh, hope we don't have to wait too long. Acting as a confederate just means... Part of the experiment. Part of the experiment. So, like, he's he's acting. Um, he he works for the investigators, but the participant doesn't know that. Yes, and uh, and so he says, oh, "I hope we don't have to wait too long," and then waits for thirty seconds just to see if any conversation ensues. And every thirty seconds for five minutes, he drops another kind of conversational invitation, and just sees what what happens. Then, after five minutes, the researchers come in and say, "Oh, thank you both for coming. Now we're going to begin." Your task for the next five minutes is to pretend you're at a party and get to know each other as well as you can. So now there's an assignment. There is some structure. And both of these five-minute intervals were taped and then reviewed afterwards for, like, social competence, social performance. And as you can imagine, in the first five minutes, the women with social anxiety lagged way behind the women who are, again, more confidently chatty than average. But in the second five minutes where they had something to hang their hat on, they, you know, they had a mission, they were almost neck and neck, which is really impressive because, again, like this is compared to people who are above average on the kind of social performance level. And so just being able to walk into a Christmas party and say, OK, I'm going to have conversations with three people or to go into a networking session and say, all right, I'm going to try to exchange three sets of business cards or to decide that you're going to be the unofficial, like, this is us host for your friends, and people are going to come to your house and, and, and watch. Like, giving yourself some structure can be really helpful, again, in making that anxiety go away. A lot of people that I work with note that it is much easier for them to host a party than it is for them to attend a party. Interesting. Why yes. is it? Because they have control? They, they, have, they have a role to play. They, it's, it's less... Freeform. The the thing that drives all anxiety, not just social anxiety, is uncertainty. Mm. And so when you take away the uncertainty and you know what you're supposed to do, whether it's just refilling people's drinks or introducing people, trying to connect them, then that uncertainty falls away and you feel a lot better. What has worked most for you? For me, I would say 
I would say turning my attention inside out. And I would say, and this connects back to what we talked about earlier, trying to loosen up on my perfectionism. I think, again, like 10, 20 years ago, this, so I, I okay, in the book, I like, I wish, I wish, I, the, I, I wrote a book for me 20 years ago. These are all the things I wish I had known. And I, I felt, I think I thought I was walking on some, some sort of like social tightrope. And that if I were to, or I was like going through it like a laser maze. And if I was to make one mistake, alarms would go off all around me. And and so to mix my metaphors, rather than a tightrope, I think I realize now that I'm more on an expressway. That there is such this wide variation of kind of acceptable social behaviors or that, that, that I, don't, I don't have to worry nearly as much as I thought I did. So perfectionism is kind of a misnomer, actually, because it's not about being perfect. Perfectionists don't actually strive to be perfect. They worry about never being good enough. And so if we can dare to be average, and I stole that phrase from Dr. David Burns, who wrote the first evidence-based self-help book about depression, if we can dare to be average, kind of it's, it's, it turns into the opposite of like Wobegon. We realize that that really... It's okay that nobody expects us to be witty or charming or competent or perfect all the time and that we can instead just be ourselves and that that's sufficient. A lovely study I'm, – I'm a research nerd, clearly. I like to cite studies <laughs> – um, was there's this classic study from 1966 done by Dr. Elliot Aronson. And he, in this study, he has uh, college students listen to four – one of four tape recordings – and the first two tape recordings are – well, all of them are of a guy who is ostensibly trying out for the college quiz bowl team. And in the first two, uh, you hear him – in the first one, you, you hear him you know, talk about his accomplishments and he's pretty competent. He seems like a nice guy. Um, he has some good extracurricular activities. So, you know, solid guy. Second recording, uh, it's he's he's kind of a loser, kind of a tool, like – uh, gets less than a third of the questions correct. But then in the third and fourth recordings, you hear exactly the same thing. So competent guy, kind of incompetent guy. And at the end, there's this little bit tacked on of a clattering noise and then him saying, oh, no, I've spilled coffee all over my new suit. And all the participants are asked, which which guy do they like the best? And inevitably, it is the recording where it's the competent guy who spills coffee on himself. It's not the guy who's competent and, you know, nothing bad happens to him, but it's the people like the humanizing mm -hmm. element. It takes him from being superhuman to being human and therefore being accessible. And so I think realizing that uh, my foibles and um, the little blips and bloops of how I walk through the world are actually quite endearing and that I don't have to conceal them or worry that people will judge me for them. Well, it reminds me of uh, – I'm not going to be able to reproduce this with complete fidelity, but uh, Adam Grant's book, Give and Take, it's about altruism and its opposite in the workplace, mm -hmm. the how to givers and takers and, and what he calls matchers, people who are sort of into reciprocity, do in a professional context. Within the context of that book, he talks about a study that I think very much uh, aligns with what you're saying, which is that people who show vulnerability do well in front of audiences, do, in other words, do well in front of other human beings. Mm -hmm. But there is an asterisk there, which is that not in front of people with extremely high self-esteem. Oh, interesting. And I found in my own work in my own sort of meditation world where I go out and I give the same speech to the same – to audiences all over the country, it, generally, you know, I get up and tell, talk about how I had a panic attack on national television. I think I present as a pretty well-put-together, confident guy, whether that's true or not. I think that's just the image that people take. And then I tell the story about how I had a panic attack. And um, I find that for the vast majority of audiences, that's – it's a very successful tactic uh, because I'm revealing something about myself and it's humanizing – but I noticed with some masters of the universe, it really doesn't go that well. And so I've just found in my own experience that what Adam was talking about, which, again, I might not be reproducing correctly, really is true. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on any of the foregoing. Well, so it's interesting because self-esteem, I think, was thought to be this really important thing. But I think as research goes along, it's 
it's there's another side to it. So self-esteem is often a label, like I'm great or I'm beautiful or I'm successful. Mm-hmm. And so people with really high self-esteem um, have a lot invested in trying to stick with those labels. And so things that that challenge that label for them. And I'm not I'm not sure exactly how this would tie to your experience of when you reveal something about yourself, the self-esteem, the high self-esteem folks, you know, don't respond so well. Maybe they but, just want somebody to get up there and say, here's how great I am. And here's how you, too, can continue to be awesome as you fundamentally are, as opposed to getting up there and saying being a human being is messy. And here's how it's messy in my case. And here's how I've dealt with it. So interestingly, so that as you were, as I was listening to you, so again, turning my attention inside out. So um, the, the, the 1% of people who have never experienced social anxiety, have no self-doubt, are narcissists <laughs> slash psychopaths. <laughs> and so when, when you have no self-doubt, when you are um, completely confident, that's actually a sign of things gone wrong. Huh. That we, so social anxiety... I think exists because it's it's an it's overshot, um, like questioning of oneself. I think that almost ever the ninety nine percent of people have some kind of either sense of inadequacy or feeling insecure about something in their life, and I think that that is I know that that is actually normal, and I think that evolution and nature have programmed us to be at least a little bit insecure because it forces us to be introspective. It forces us to check ourselves and see how can I get along with my fellow humans. We need the group to survive. And even if we don't need the group to build shelter or like find water anymore, like we still need it for love and companionship and community and belongingness. And so I think that, again, we we have to be a little bit insecure. We have to doubt ourselves in order to check ourselves. And so that's why social anxiety still exists, that nature would rather have us overshoot. It would rather have a false alarm where no threat actually exists than the opposite. We don't want to have no alarm and then our house burns down. Right. And so the people who are unfortunate enough to, to not experience social anxiety actually have a problem. Um, oh, I can see why it's, it's, a, it's a faulty wiring you because you, you have no – you don't care what other people think and therefore are going to act based on that. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that often means that uh, you're acting in ways that are not so social. Yeah. And so and with folks with social anxiety, like it, it's a package deal. And so the, the overshot caring what people think about you, if you roll that back a little bit, it's simply caring about people. And that nothing can go wrong with that. And, you know, other great traits hang together with that folks with social anxiety, if you roll back the perfectionism a little bit, have high standards and work really hard. They're quite empathetic. They notice what's going on around them and can really tap into emotion. Uh, They're conscientious. And so as people work on their social anxiety and that goes away, all those other wonderful traits like caring about people don't go away. But but when you talk about self-consciousness, I mean, that is actually, I mean, that which, as you described before, can be a big part in and maybe always is a part of social anxiety. That is, is though, that is really just being focused on yourself. I mean, so isn't, well, first of all, two things about that. One is that from a Buddhist perspective, that really aligns with, you know, getting carried away with self-concern is really the source of much of our suffering. Mm-hmm. But also it seems to indicate that actually you are not, you aren't really concerned with other people because you're just worried about how you look. So the question is... I have no idea. <laughs> so, well, okay. Let me take it this way. Often I just say stuff. <laughs> so, here, well, let me just say something. So, <laughs> so, I, so at the very beginning, we were talking about how, like, if I give, um, if I give meditation a try, mm-hmm. if I just kind of jump in and do it before I am ready, before I decide that I'm going to do this, then I will let the benefits pull me forward most likely. Likely, So there is a parallel here with social anxiety. And so there, I get a lot of people coming to my office saying, you know, I wish I could just kind of hit pause on my life. I wish I could retreat from the world and like work on myself and gain confidence and then emerge like back into the world like a butterfly from a cocoon and be confident and go live my life. And I say, that's awesome. I'm glad you're motivated. And Let's do that in the opposite order. Let's have you live your life so that you can gain the confidence. And so it's it's by doing the things that we're 
a little bit afraid of. Like you don't have to jump in the deep end. You can, you know, you can dip your toe in the pool. Um, but to, to stretch and grow a little bit, like that's how you build the confidence because social anxiety tells you two lies. One, it tells you that whatever the worst case scenario your, your jerk or your grandma can come up with is bound to happen. And the second lie it tells you is that you can't handle this. And so when, when you push beyond it before you're ready, before, before you think you can do this, then you gain evidence and get the experience under your belt that both those things are not true, that the worst case scenario doesn't often happen. And quite honestly, even if it does, you can handle it. You can cope. And so there is my nice tying together of our <laughs> conversation with a little bow. I like that. There we go. I like that. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre. From bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. It's still a struggle to get that good night's sleep, then maybe it's time to try the Purple Mattress. It's made out of a new material that makes it firm and soft, so it keeps everything supported while still feeling really comfortable. Try it now with a 100-night risk-free trial along with free shipping and returns. And if you order one, you'll get a free purple pillow with the purchase of a mattress. Just text HAPPIER to 474747. The only way to get this free pillow is to text HAPPIER to 474747. Message and data rates may apply. Just back to self-consciousness, and again, I don't know what the question is here, but I deal with a lot of self-consciousness, but I don't know that at the root of it is a caring about other people. It's really caring how I look in front of other people, which seems to me to be pretty different. Well, caring how you look – well, why – okay, so why do you care how you look in front – because I imagine that it's the sense that if you don't live up to some standard – that they will reject you or that they'll criticize you. I guess. Okay. Yeah. So so maybe – so, I mean, you don't strike me as having social anxiety. Certainly. I do. Sure. Oh, okay. I mean, I don't know if I have it. I, I There are times – You're part of the 80% perhaps? Yes. Okay. Part of the 80% for sure. I mean, look, I had a panic attack on national television. That's performance anxiety. Well, was was that about the performance? Because, I, mean, I mean, that's something you'd been doing for, for a while. Yeah, but yeah. I had I'd, I'd stage fright forever. Oh, okay. okay. I think I said in – I'm going to be one of those idiots who quotes himself here. But <laughs> I think I said in my first book that yeah. my career had been a triumph of narcissism over fear. There we go. Okay. Um, so okay. I have always so had stage fright. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. It caught up me because I was adding cocaine into sure. the mix, which just sure. wasn't helpful <laughs> in any way. So, so maybe, maybe then, okay, so, is this, so if this is your personal appearance, then maybe you fall into that first category of, of you know, how do I, what is my physical appearance? It's not so much my physical appearance, oh, okay. although that can give me anxiety. It's more mm. just like, you know, to, I don't know. I'm just – I don't know if I can articulate this. I, When I'm self-conscious, mm-hmm. I am just focused on myself mm-hmm. and uh, 
what's at the root of that, I guess, is a desire to look good in front of other people. Not necessarily look good in terms of my physical presentation, oh, okay. but the whole package. Ah. To, co- to come off well. And what if you didn't? What would people see? Like, what are you afraid people are going to see? Not to psychoanalyze you on the air. No, that's but. fine. That's fine. I, I, I don't uh, – that's a really good question. I don't know. Yeah. So so in, in, in my book, I call it social anxiety mad libs. Like, to, to fill in the blanks of it will become obvious that I am blank. Right. Like maybe a horrible person, incompetent, right. dumb. Right, right. And so, I mean, the fact that social anxiety is a disorder is because it's based on a distortion. And so – those all those fears are are your inner critic is it's a distortion and it's when we listen too closely to that or let that become truth it's when we let our anxiety yank us around that it becomes a problem you know i think uh for me since we're because i've steered the conversation to me as i often do as (laughs) somebody who's self-conscious and perhaps worse um uh, sometimes my it's not so much that i'm socially anxious Mm -hmm. it's that i'm antisocial that I don't, and and I'd be, I would love to hear your parsing of this. Sure. But sometimes I feel like I am, I just don't have that much to give, mm. and I, I'm so maybe just not that friendly, and and I've had people who are close to me, uh, colleagues, complain that the me that shows up here in with you in a podcast or in, a, in an on camera interview is much more sort of open than the me that's around the office just on a work-a-day basis. Mm. And I think some of that is a kind of an inner stinginess. Um, I don't know if that even fits into the rubric we're currently discussing, but that's just what's going through my mind as we're talking. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think this is what you're describing, but I think it's worth saying in case listeners identify with it. Because, okay, so when there is a threat, and that threat could be, you know, a, a, a train, a bus headed towards you. It could be an external threat, but it could also be, you know, a, th- a social threat that comes from our own head. And regardless of the threat, our minds and bodies react generally in one of two ways, and that's fight or flight. And so when we often think about social anxiety, it's flight. We think about wanting to hide under the buffet table or going to like hide in the bathroom or, you know, scrolling through our phone, pretending to refresh Twitter a lot. And so that's that's what we think of stereotypically as social anxiety. But 21% of folks who experience social anxiety come off as fight. So there they are prickly and irritable and grouchy and try to steer the conversation with white knuckles and they reject other people before they can get rejected. And so that I don't I don't think what you're talking about for you feeds into that. But again, I think it's worth Noting that for listeners who may not identify with the flight, but maybe identify with yeah. the fight. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. I don't know that that applies to at least what I was thinking of when I said that. But um, and I, I don't. Let's see if I can come up with an example. Um, well, when you were saying before that a, a, a tool to use in and is to turn your attention inside out. So in other words, you're you're focusing outwards instead of inwards and you're really listening to what the other person says mm-hmm. and you're thinking carefully before you respond. My thought was, yeah, I do I do, do that, but it's exhausting. And I don't know – I do uh, – I was going to say I, I don't know whether I can do that all the time, but I do know that I don't do that all the time. And often it will be like I'll walk out of here where I'm very – I'm listening very carefully to what you're saying and uh, – and it's not because I'm anxious, it's just because I'm, I'm You're on. I'm on. Yeah. But my next interaction will probably be much less satisfactory to the person with whom I'm interacting because I've expended a lot of yes. energy and I can't I don't feel like I can do that all the time. No. And I mean I think I think that's normal. I don't think anybody could really do that all the time. Just like you can't be mindful all the time. Like sometimes you do have to plan and sometimes you do have to reflect. Like you can't be in the moment all the time. I think that's okay. And so I don't think it's um the, the goal to to try to turn one's attention inside out all the time and to never look inward. Um I think so, so something else that I think is important to say that Oftentimes, there is, I get questions about how do I know if I'm socially anxious or how do I know if I'm just an introvert? And, and so to speak to that, I like to say that introversion is your way. Like that's just how you're wired. And so introverts have like a lower tolerance for stimulation. Um, they, their energy gets drained 
um, by being in either crowds or just places where they have to expend their energy. Extroverts often have never met a stranger and get their energy from other people. They need the stimulation. And whereas social anxiety, you can you can be socially anxious as an introvert or an extrovert. And so um, sometimes people get confused. They say, well, how could, how could an extrovert be socially anxious? And that's a particularly hard place to be. That's being between a rock and a hard place because there you crave interaction. Like you, you, you draw your energy from other people, but you get scared of being rejected by them. And so that's, that's a very uncomfortable place to be because you are left either being anxious or sluggish and bored. So that's, that's, that's no good. But um, in terms of the going back to the introvert versus socially anxious distinction – so introversion is is hardwired and doesn't need to change if that's you know how our personalities are are such that we just have that lower tolerance for stimulation super cool and social anxiety gets in your way that's that's where it causes inordinate distress or it gets in the way of life and it can and should be challenged and changed we can grow and stretch and have the that anxiety be reduced the the best way to reduce social anxiety is to do the the very things that give us the heebie-jeebies. And I know that sounds horrible, but but to try to grow and stretch and to, to again, not have to jump in the deep end of the pool, but to try a little something that maybe we wouldn't have done before and get the evidence that those two lies of social anxiety, the worst case scenario is going to happen, or I can't handle this, to have those be refuted. Where, if anywhere, does um, fear of dancing fit into your what we're talking about here? Is is that is that a personal ish? Quest, but ish? there's a yeah. certain amount of self consciousness that yeah, no, locks absolutely. people up so they can't dance. Yeah, yeah. There's a fear of looking foolish. There's yeah. a fear. So there's a fear of like being seen letting loose, or um, or just or having the internal sensations of of letting loose. And somehow that seems unseemly or embarrassing or something. And plus, we often get afraid that we just look like a fool. So, yeah, that absolutely falls under kind of a loose version of performance anxiety because we're afraid of what people are going to think. Where do you think in your case the social anxiety comes from? Do you think it was it was apparent or just wiring? I think it was I think it was wiring. Um, I, I don't. So my, I talk about this in the book, but my very first memory is one of social anxiety in when I was about three in preschool. Um, the the teacher would have us all take like rests on mats on the floor, and so like there were like ten of us in a row, and she would play guitar and like sing like kind of lullabies to us. And I remember one day I woke up like this was not supposed to be nap time; this was just rest time. But I clearly had accidentally fallen asleep, and I woke up to the teacher, like, leaning over her guitar, looking at me, saying, there you are, like, you know, good good morning, sweetheart, and all the other kids looking at me. And just, I had the sense of being the center of attention and somehow that being very wrong. And so I remember, like, closing my eyes, like, really tightly trying to make all their gazes go away. And, like, that wasn't taught to me. I was three, you know, and so, but there was this sense of being the center of attention, being the focus of everyone no one was making fun of me. No one was laughing. They were just looking. And so that, for me at least, hmm. tells me that, that this was hardwired. And yeah. how, how did it get in your way? Well, so I'd say, you know, 20 years ago, my, my um, wardrobe consisted mostly of black, white, and gray. I would not buy shoes that clicked on the floor because I thought they, you know, drew too much attention. I was one of the people who would not raise my hand in class. If I got called on, I would answer, but... I would like tremble and sweat afterwards for a good few minutes and have to have to go drink some water. Um, if I went to a party in college, I would talk only with the friends I came with and would kind of have invisible blinders on. So I didn't have to make eye contact with anyone else there. So I always participated, but I used a lot of safety behaviors and would try to artificially tamp down that anxiety. But what happens then is that it's kind of like trying to hold a beach ball underwater. Eventually, like it's just going to pop up to the surface. And so it wasn't really until grad school that I started identifying the symptoms I was learning about and learning how to treat as like, well, this all sounds really familiar and applying the techniques to myself. And I think a combination of time and experience, you can't avoid everything and just, you know, gaining experience out in the world but also consciously trying to do some of these things that I just talked about was helpful 
to me. And now, you know, I'm I'm sitting here with you. I'm doing it, you know, interviews. Thank you. And, you know, I I feel I feel good. Like, yeah, I'm I'm living the dream. (laughs) (laughs) The human condition is so funny because we need each other. Mm -hmm. But we're really difficult to deal with. It's so true. Yeah, yeah, I agree. We again, we need each other for love and belonging and community, and we're desperately afraid that each of the other one of us is going to reject us. I mean, that's that's hard work. That that's evolution. Like back back in the day, you know, if you got kicked out of the group, like that was certain death. Like banishment meant you were thrown to the jackals, right? And so, like, I get why we are hardwired to to check ourselves and to make sure we're getting along, um, even if. You know, we're not going to be cast to the wilderness today. Before we go, can we can we can we just plug your book, sure, podcast, everything? Just give us everything. Plug, Social plug-a-rama. media, yeah, yeah. Plug, we absolutely. call it the plug zone. The plug, plug zone. Plugorama is good. Yeah, like all right, that. sounds good. So the book is called uh, "How to Be Yourself: Quiet Your Inner Critic and Rise Above Social Anxiety." And I also have a podcast called Savvy Psychologist. And you can, uh, listeners, you can look for Dan's episode in, in the archives there. It was, uh, it was fantastic. Um, it's a weekly podcast. You can find it wherever you like to get your podcasts. And you can also find me online at ellenhendrickson.com. And there are a nice little collection of free resources there uh, for social anxiety that anyone can download. Social media? Uh, at Ellen Hendrickson on Twitter. All right. Yeah. You were great. You were great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me DJ and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.